I'm Dr. Future, your host. I invite you to join me as together we experience a future quake. 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 Welcome back to this week's edition of the Future Quake Show. I'm Dr. Future. And I'm Tom Bionic. It's good to be back here. Yeah, and we've got a whole new set of shows and a new guest, David Lowe, which I think is going to blow a lot of people away. Well, I tell you, he really made me think about a lot of different things during the interview. Yeah, and I think everybody's going to really enjoy it. It's a rather lengthy interview, so we can't hang around very long. But uh, a lot of people I don't think are familiar with him that are our listeners. I know you all are driving, but uh, get your thinking caps on. Yeah, and uh, just take your hand off the wheel and take some notes, and I think you'll really, <laughs> think you'll really enjoy that very much. But uh, we're going to come back and have a very, very brief discussion about some of the things he says. And so, with no further ado, we need to introduce uh, David Lowe, author of Earthquake Resurrection, and then we'll come right back for our next segment of Future Quake. Ladies and gentlemen, this is Dr. Future of the Future Quake Show. I'm here with Tom Bionic. Hey. And we are interviewing David Lowe, who is the author of the book Earthquake Resurrection. And we're going to discuss with him a little bit during our interview about the future worldwide cataclysmic earthquake. And, uh... Mr. Lowe, I just would like to welcome you back again uh, as a very popular guest of our show in the past, and I really look forward to introducing you to a whole new family of listeners that we now have with our newly reformatted Future Quake show. Uh, to, to start things off, first of all, can, can you just tell us a little bit about your background for all of our new listeners and how it led you to undertake this project? Well, thanks a lot, Dr. Future. It's very good to be back with you. I look forward to a couple of hours of interesting discussion hmm. and uh also your your co-host yeah we're look, happy look to have you we're look, happy to yeah have look you. forward to some good questions so um well my background when people ask about a background at least when i when i'm reading a book and i want to know about somebody's background i want to know why does this person think he knows what he's talking about? Mm-hmm. You know, what are his qualifications? Right. So I guess for me, um, what I like to cite is back in my youth, in my teen years, I was part of a program in the Assembly of God Church called Bible Quiz. And what we did, and this was for like ages 12 through 18, and they also have a junior Bible Quiz, which is, for really the really young kids just still in grade school. But what we do is we take, during the normal school year, we take a book of the Bible or books of the Bible and we put them to memory. Well, we're supposed to put them to memory. And uh, each church would have a team and different churches would visit other churches and have competitions and tournaments and things like that. And there would be even a national final competition at the end of the school year. 
in which the teams that would qualify and, and uh, win their tournaments leading up to that would quiz against each other. And so during this um, program, I put to verbatim memory probably two-thirds of the New Testament so that I could quote you know, forwards and backwards, word for word, every single verse of books like Hebrews, Luke, Acts, um, a lot of the epistles of Paul. And so um, it was that foundation really that uh, kind of led to my interest in the study of the Bible, Bible prophecy. I've always loved studying the scripture. And so that's kind of my background of kind of what qualifies me to even begin to write about something uh, theological, I guess. So, Okay. So you've had a lifetime of studying the Bible and studying it in great depth. Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. Uh, but but uh, you, you uh, have another career. You, you actually uh, are a person in the business world, a professional <laughs> in that area. But uh, you decided that there was a an opportunity with some research that you were doing that led you to write a book. What made you decide that it was up to you to uh, get a book out there to begin discussion on, on what you'd found? Yes, I, I definitely didn't quit my day job. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I am a, I'm a certified public accountant as well. So um, really what led me to uh, look into this uh, global catas- catastrophic uh model of Bible prophecy is um, basically after the events of September 11th, I drew closer to the Lord and I felt um, kind of the Holy Spirit guiding me into studying the scriptures at a, at a deeper level. Mm. And a lot of times when I've heard other people say when they, when they start to study the Bible, they automatically start with Bible prophecy. And so that was definitely the case with me. And I began to um, get videos and audios of everything that I could get my hands on and also looked on the Internet for um, research of of ideas and things concerning the coming of the Lord and the resurrection and the rapture and things like that. And I came across uh, some very interesting information by Peter Goodgame Regarding regular guest, yeah, that's right, yeah. Regarding uh, the rapture of the church, the catching up event, as I like to call it, taking place um, when the sixth seal of Revelation chapter six is opened. And I thought that was kind of an interesting idea. Of course, it's definitely not what the traditional models of Bible prophecy and interpretation of Revelation would, would tell you. So. Uh, I kind of looked at that and dug deeper into that idea, and um, looking looking at that passage there in in Revelation chapter six, um, when the sixth seal is open, I knew that when the rapture takes place, there's also a resurrection of the dead in Christ that precedes it immediately precedes it. So, what I wanted to know is where does the resurrection of the dead fit into that passage in, in uh, Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 through 14. So that's really what got me started uh, looking into what what does the resurrection of the dead in Christ, uh, 
What, what does the Bible tell us about that event? What other clues and what other parallels can we see from other resurrection events in the Bible? And one thing led to another, and what I found was pretty astonishing. Wow. Well, and uh, that's what leads up to the premise of your book. Um, can, can you uh, go right into uh, laying a foundation for our, our listeners with a brief capsule review uh, of this premise uh, of the book itself? Sure thing. Well, the premise of Earthquake Resurrection, as you can tell by the title, is I believe that the scripture shows that, and this is something that uh, the listeners would will probably be shocked to hear because it's it's definitely not something that is taught by the mainstream Bible prophecy teachers, but I believe that the resurrection of the dead in Christ will be ushered in by a global catastrophe. And that mm. the, cat, the catching up event is actually a snatching away out of harm's way from that catastrophe. And that, that may sound like a pretty crazy thing, but it's definitely backed up with a lot of scripture. Things that Jesus himself said and things that Paul wrote in his epistles regarding events that will take place in conjunction with uh, the resurrection of the dead, and certain parallels such as the trumpet of God, understanding what the trumpet of God is that that coincides with the resurrection of the dead, understanding what the last trumpet is, which he said in which Paul said in First Corinthians chapter fifteen coincides with the resurrection of the dead. Uh, different different kind of parallels and and things like that. So okay, so so you you put a, an association together between an earthquake incident and the resurrection events of the Bible, correct? That's right. That's okay. right. Okay. Now, just to make sure that, that our listeners have this clearly and to, until they get a hold of your book, which I highly recommend that they do, and, and we'll make sure to tell them later how to get a hold of your book, uh, ex- explain very clearly uh, what you lay out in your book as a chain of events leading up to and including the proposed earthquake that you say will happen, the resurrection, the transformation of the saints, and then the catching up of believers, according to your newly proposed prophetic model. Right, right. Well, the chain of events really includes uh, the birth pains that Jesus mentioned would would take place leading up until the end, which uh, which can be found in uh, Luke chapter 21 and Matthew chapter 24. And I think they parallel very, very closely the events of the... Uh, the first five seals of Revelation chapter 6. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> and again, that's what the traditional models will say is something that has that will happen in the future. But according mm-hmm. to my model, has already taken place and is concurrently taking place as uh, we get closer and closer to the opening of the sixth seal. Mm-hmm. We, we can get into that a little bit later, but um, those birth pains are, are things that, that lead up to the resurrection transformation and catching up or rapture event and um, that's kind of the, what I call the three stage uh, three stage event that believers look forward to first the resurrection of the dead in Christ is a resurrection into immortal bodies in in which uh, the body is no longer corruptible no longer perishable Paul says this this mortal must put on immortality this perishable this uh, perishable body must must be made imperishable. So uh, 
we're talking about a resurrection not in not back into a body that that uh, again passes away for a second time which which there are examples of that in the bible but we're actually talking about this, the type of resurrection that Jesus experienced where his body was changed into a glorified supernatural body um, and that that's the second stage of the three stage event the transformation paul says we will not all sleep but we will all be changed in a moment, in a twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised incorruptible, and we will be changed. That's First Corinthians chapter fifteen, verse fifty-one, I believe. Mm-hmm. So, and let me ask you, David, uh, this transformation um, is is this transformation, or some called glorification of our bodies, is that only a maybe a foretaste or an initial beginning of the complete transformation of all creation later. We we know that will be a cataclysmic event when the when the current earth and heavens will burn with fire and be transformed. Yes. Uh, is that part of the justification of why you see on, on a smaller scale why should we should expect cataclysmic events around us when when, when even our mortal bodies are transformed in this manner? Wow, that's an interesting thought, Mike. Uh, hmm. Future, I had definitely hadn't thought of that. But that is a, that's a good possibility. I see what you're saying there. It's, 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 a, it's a creative act, just like uh, the original creation uh, of, of the heavens and the earth. And you know, some people talk about big bangs or kind of big events that happened when, when the Lord said, let there be light and, and spoke these things into existence. There, right. there must have been some, some big massive thing that occurred in time and space. When that mm-hmm. occurred, and I would think since this is another creative event, that we should expect something cataclysmic to happen when we're exposed to it. I hear a Dr. Future book in the works, is what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. No, I think that's that's definitely a, a good parallel. Okay. Uh, and then uh, the catching up event happens. You have yes. that happening some finite time after the transformation event. That's right. That's right. Uh, for, first, you'll have a resurrection of persons that have passed away who who were believers, and then their bodies will be transformed along with those who are living and remaining. So the transformation actually uh, involves not only believers that had passed away, but also believers who are currently alive. Their bodies are going to be changed, and then. Uh, we really don't know how much time passes between the catching up into the air, which is really only uh, described for us in First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 16 and 17. But we do know that it takes place. Uh, I personally believe it's, it's pretty pretty close to that event uh, because there, if there is a, a catastrophe from which we need to be caught up and snatched up into the air, then... Um, it would have to be, and that catastrophe is a result of the resurrection event, which I propose, then the, the catching up would need to be uh, pretty much directly after that. So, uh, yeah, the catching up event is uh, the Lord descending with a shout, the voice of the archangel, the trumpet of God sounding, and uh, we which are alive and remain being caught up together with them, meaning the resurrected dead in Christ, in the clouds, both groups caught up together to meet the Lord in the air. Hmm. So that that makes up the third stage of that three-stage uh, transformation process. Okay. All right. Hmm. Hmm. Uh, and and is this transformation process of believers is is that in some ways 
um, preparing them to be prepared for the heavenlies or the place where they're in fact taken. In other words, do their bodies need to be transformed to be suitable for presence and in, in where the Lord takes them? Yeah, I, th- I think so because uh, apparently, you know, Jesus was uh, in his resurrected body able to move in and out of apparently our three-dimensional world at will. And, uh, you know, he would appear in a locked room with the disciples and then just as quickly vanish out of their sight, seemingly able to dematerialize and rematerialize uh, whenever he wanted to. Mm-hmm. So these are, these are qualities that are not in our three-dimensional world, obviously, and and they are definitely supernatural, glorified body type of traits. And by the way, uh, you know, Philippians chapter 3, verse 21 says that our mortal bodies will be transformed into the likeness of his glorious body. So apparently, believers will also share these same kind of traits that Jesus had in his glorified body, which is something very exciting to think about. So for lack of a better term, if, if there are extra dimensions in what we know of as heaven, or just different dimensions, our bodies have to be transformed to be uh, suitably prepared to be able to function within that space. Absolutely. We're, we're heading toward an eternal reward, and in order to to take part in that, we would have to have a body that is eternal, that is not corruptible. Okay. So, well, I, I want to test... I want to test your model a little bit, David, because I know this is probably blowing the minds of a lot of people who are listening. Including, at least I hope it is. Me, yeah. At least including I hope me. it is, because we're really just scratching the surface of the yeah, tremendous, we, we haven't got there yet. <laughs> the, the, the tremendous contributions that I think you've made uh, in this field, of which this book we're discussing tonight was only your initial foray in that area, and, and created a, a huge earthquake in its own right. Uh, when it when it was released and people are getting a hold of it, and I've, I've heard some of the incredible words and feedback on it. But to test your theory a little bit, now we know that there were some other events where people were raised from the dead in the Bible that we don't at least have any record of earthquakes. Um, and you may have alluded this a little bit earlier, but I just want to make sure this is clear. A, a, a couple, for instances, are Elijah. You know, he actually raised someone from the dead, we're told, uh, Lazarus himself. And even uh, Peter raised up someone in the book of Acts. And in those particular events, we did not at least hear an, an earthquake associated. Uh, how, how would you explain that within your model? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and that's where you have to differentiate between a resurrection that is a, a raising to life, that is, that is back into the mortal body of the person, where that person comes back to life but then lives out the rest of his life and dies again. He's not resurrected into this imperishable, incorruptible body we've been talking about. Oh, so he's not. So he's not in an immortal body. I okay. Yeah. yeah all right. Yeah. Examples would be, uh, like you said, Doctor Future, uh, Elijah raising the, the the son of the widow, um, and there's there's several examples in both the Old and New Testament. What one that's probably familiar to everyone is Lazarus. Who passed away and was uh, was dead for up to four days, and Jesus ra- raised Lazarus from the dead, and he uh, you know he apparently lived out his life and then died again. Mm-hmm. We have you know we have several other uh, examples of that where where Jesus and and Simon Peter raised someone up from the dead. And um, there were no resur- there were no earthquakes associated with those resurrections. At least we're not told of any. So that would be a difference where the spirit 
actually returns to that body. This God uh, sends the spirit back into that body. Uh, it's a miracle, yes, but um, that's all that really takes place. There's not that transformation, not that glorification of the body. So, um, okay, so that the, would be the main difference there. The breath comes back into them, the breath of life. Exactly. That that's the that's the extent of it. Yeah, that's that right, and there's several passages in the in the Bible that refer to that that life's breath or the spirit that God is responsible for, and it and it returns to that body in in the case of a, uh, a raising to life. So yeah, there there would be no earthquakes associated with those, but uh, interestingly enough, there are a, a couple, two or three actually, that um, where there there's an actual resurrection. And the the persons were raised into immortal bodies, and in each case, there's an earthquake associated with those resurrections. Mm-hmm. Now, now one case that um, really intrigues me. Of course, they all do, but one in particular that you elaborate on that I don't hear other writers talking about when they discuss the gospel narrative is the fact that when Jesus resurrected from the dead, there was a massive earthquake, and the and a number of graves opened. And it says that these saints actually came up out of the ground and went into Jerusalem and presented themselves to other people. Now, for something that fantastic, I am so surprised that people do not discuss this further. Um, <laughs> they just sort of gloss over it like, oh, yeah, it's so, like a footnote. Yeah, yeah. So, so what? So some people raised from the dead and went down in town, you know, move on to the next story. <laughs> All right. Let's, let's get on to the baguettes. Um, <clears throat> but, but, you know, you're one of the few people that says, let's stop, let's figure out what happened here. And um, I, I want to talk about that a little bit further. You, you submit that not only was Jesus one that was transformed by this power and glorified body, but possibly even these people who, who opened up from the ground as well. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Now, now that's not a, that is not an essential statement for, for your proposal to be true because, I mean, even if Jesus alone raised from the dead, it could have caused a strong localized earthquake. So, and we know Jesus was in a glorified body, so that alone would prove it. But, but you go further and say that it's possible that these other people could be in that state as well too, correct? Absolutely. That's correct. Okay. Now, what do you think happened after they presented themselves uh, if they were in fact in resurrected bodies, they should be. I mean, in, in glorified bodies, they should be immortal. Do you have any kind of, you know, surmising of what they may might be even doing now? I don't. I don't know if anybody ever even talks about that possibility. Uh, what do you think they did after they presented themselves in Jerusalem? What was the aftermath? White Castle. Yeah, that, what's that? <laughs> I said White Castle. They went to White Castle. <laughs> yeah, really. Well, that's the next best thing to heaven. Yes, me. Are you? No, are, uh, I don't know if you're in White Castle country there. Uh, in we are Kansas. definitely not in White Castle country. Well, I'm sure, lucky, lucky you. I'm sure sorry to hear that. When, when you come to see oh, the future have, Quake staff, we'll we'll treat you right. <laughs> I have had them once when I was in uh, Chicago, I believe. But it's like no, ha- uh, it's like having your own glorified body. <laughs> no, I don't know about that. Back to the question, Tom. Uh, well, what, what do you think? What's your what's your hypothesis on what happened yeah. in the aftermath of this? Well, the listeners might not know exactly what we're talking about, so... Uh, uh, that's like a frequent occurrence on the Future yeah. Quake show, Dave. <laughs> Sometimes even we don't. Yes. Yeah, well, let's just read the passage and see what it says. A lot of people who consider themselves Christians don't even know that this passage exists in the Bible, and so um, it's kind of a shock to them when they hear it the first time. But mm-hmm. 
Matthew 27, 50-54 Then Jesus cried out with a loud voice and gave up his spirit. Just then the temple curtain was torn in two from top to bottom. Period. The earth shook and the rocks were split apart. And tombs were opened. And the bodies of many saints who, who had died were raised. They came out of the tombs after his resurrection and went into the holy city, meaning Jerusalem, and appeared to many people. Now when the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were extremely terrified and said, truly, this one was God's son. Now when you compare this passage to the other gospel narratives of Jesus' death and resurrection, you will not find any mention of these many saints that were raised. Only Matthew mm-hmm. refers to this. And so, it's interesting in, in, in Luke, uh, there's very, very similar wording to what is in Matthew, except the whole kind of parenthetical about these many saints is, is left out. Where it, where it says, just after the temple was t- torn from top to bottom, that begins the section where Matthew talks about Shaking of the earth, tombs coming open, and bodies being raised from the dead, coming out of the tombs after Jesus' resurrection. And then Luke picks up with, now when the centurion saw those things. So this entire section is like a parenthetical, uh, by the way, kind of, kind of a state paragraph by Matthew. So what's going on here? Well, what I believe is taking place here is when Jesus was raised from the dead, there was so much power uh, and so much energy that was being displaced in our three-dimensional world in that tomb that it caused a, sh- a localized shaking, like you said, of his tomb and the surrounding tombs, perhaps, of many saints who had who had also been buried. And what what we have is tombs coming open. Well, how did the tombs come open? They had to have come open with the shaking of the earth, right? Sure. I mean, tombs don't right. Tombs don't come open unless you know there's some shaking going on. Mm-hmm. You know, so um, I believe these are kind of the kind of tombs that were in the holes in the earth and in, in the caves and things like that back in that time. And and it says that they came out of their tombs after his resurrection. So if we have tombs coming open with uh, with the shaking of the earth, and they came out of their tombs at the resurrection, what I believe had to have taken place was these people were raised and came out of their tombs upon upon the shaking of the earth at Jesus' resurrection, not what it sounds like, the shaking of the earth at his death. And that's that's kind of what it sounds like when you first read it, that, okay, there was an earthquake when Jesus died, you know. Mm-hmm. I don't know if... It, if you've seen Passion, where uh, the Roman soldiers are running around scurrying and trying to thrust a sword in Jesus' side because the earth is shaking and it's there's rumbling all around. Well, I don't believe that was the case at all because an eyewitness to that whole sequence was John. And in his gospel, he did not mention any shaking or any earthquake going on when Jesus died. What I believe happened was this, this uh, earthquake took place at his resurrection. Hmm. And and right after his resurrection, these many saints also ra- were raised and came out of their tombs. Unless they, you know, were kind of sitting there for three days, you know, the tombs came open and the earth shook 
And they were just sitting there in their graves for three days. And then, oh, now we can come out of our tombs and raise from the dead because Jesus is finally raised. No, I don't think that's what happened at all. Mm-hmm. You know, the, the, the Bible says that Jesus was the first fruits of the resurrection of the dead. Right. And so he had to be raised first and then the the gospel the gospel writer Matthew makes it clear that after his resurrection they came out of their tombs. Now that's that's if in fact their bodies were glorified bodies. If they were glorified bodies, uh they would need to be at least coincident when when Jesus rose or, or shortly thereafter. If they were that's not right. if they were not glorified bodies, which again would would not do anything to your theory about the earthquake association, um then uh, then that would not be necessary. But if it is so, now one thing sort of interesting, if in fact that was true, that the earthquake in their raising uh, was, uh, you know, at the time when Jesus was raised, uh, there are other passages in Scripture that suggest that he came uh, amongst the Old Testament saints and led them out of mm-hmm. the Abraham's bosom or wherever they might be. That would be an interesting time for their spirits to re-inhabit glorified bodies at the time that those, uh, you know, those tombs open up. Absolutely. Yeah, that's, that's a good possibility as well. Uh, but but it still leaves the, the bigger question is, uh, what did those people do when they, uh, you know, was it just a sampling of the people who were in the earth? Was it just something to show further proof of the, the power of God? Uh, and if so, if they what were in glorified purpose? bodies, what are they up yeah. to now? Right. What is the whole purpose of, of of God raising these people? You know, if if it's just a parenthetical, you know, is there any other reason for it? Um, and and another thing is, is your initial question was, how do we know that they were in immortal bodies? And really, there's no record of of there being a mass killing of you know a large number of people in that area that would necessitate the phrase many saints to be used of their resurrection we know that jesus was crucified on passover and two thieves with him but uh you know there's no record in in the historical record of a large number of people passing away such that their bodies would be um you know able to be non-decomposed and and resurrected into back into their mortal bodies so what i'm saying here is that i believe that they had to be resurrected back into immortal bodies because we don't really have a record of there being, uh, you know, a large number of people that could be considered many saints who had just recently died and could be resurrected back into their mortal bodies. So you're saying because their bodies would have wasted away and decayed, there yes. had to have been some major transformation done to them. Absolutely. Okay. Perfect. Uh, perfect. <laughs> okay. All right. I understand that now. Uh, still leads up to the question about. Uh, what in the world could they be up to now if they were in those kind of bodies? Right, right. Any, any ideas? Yeah, and that's the thing. We really don't have a good answer for that, and and all we can do is speculate. However, there's a one idea that I had that I put in my uh, book uh, later in the book, we're on chapter 16, is that perhaps the purpose that these many saints served was to be uh, the... 144,000 that is mentioned in Revelation chapter 7 from the from the different tribes of uh, the sons of Jacob and perhaps they serve a purpose to come back onto the earth in the future 
to carry out whatever plan God has for them in that in that capacity. And so they would they would be in glorified bodies all this time. Who who knows where they are? Perhaps they are, you know, in the heavenly realm because as we said, in those glorified bodies they are able to be in in the different dimensions mm. in the heavenly realm. But perhaps they uh, they give up that um that glorified, not, the, not give up the glorified body, but but come back into the three-dimensional world at that time in the future, and are able to uh, you know to be seen and to carry out uh, their testimony that they have on the earth at that time. So that's that's one possibility. I think it's uh, I go through several reasons why I believe that. That's not just a you know oh I wonder if that's a possibility. Mm-hmm. There's there's like. Uh, some really good reasons why I think that there's parallels between the many saints and the 144,000. Can, can you mention a couple for us? Uh, do, you, do you have those available, Dave? Yeah, I do. Um, well, one thing is um, they were called uh, – the 144,000 are called uh, descendants of the different tribes of Israel, and they must be all men who are sexually pure. So uh, there's really no no description of the many saints that would contradict those traits right there. Mm-hmm. Um, now here's the interesting one: they were redeemed from among humanity, which uh, the 144,000 described as. And so that that's an interesting thing because um, these many saints were redeemed from among humanity, perhaps as a first fruits. To God, the, to be presented by Jesus Christ as um, Himself as the first fruits, but then kind of bringing uh, an additional uh, representative of, of the resurrection of the dead to uh, to heaven with Him when He came to heaven, when He ascended to heaven. Um, uh, a couple other things that are interesting: um, they're also called first fruits to God and to the Lamb, as I said. The, these 144,000. So yes, Jesus is the first fruits, but these 144,000 are also called first fruits. Would would be and, Christ's first fruits, in other words. Exactly right. So here we have the first persons, these many saints that were raised after Jesus rose from the dead, according to Matthew 27. We have them called first these them called first fruits, these 144,000, in Revelation chapter 14. So, um, you know, those are some of the some of the traits that I think are uh, very interesting parallels that perhaps would give the give this idea some some credence. So. Okay. Well, we know that the 144,000 are some very very special people, just by the the traits we read of them in Revelation. They're not mm-hmm. like anyone who's ever come before. Right. Uh, we also know we think of the people who are actually listed by name that are quote the good guys. In Revelation, specific people, and there's something special about them too, where they're not just mere mortal people. Uh, in fact, uh, the two witnesses, uh, which mm-hmm. is which is yet another example you use of an earthquake uh, resulting in their resurrection, where they actually resurrect from the ground. Uh, this would this would make them sort of similar uh, akin to these 144,000 that you talk about. That's right. Yeah. Uh, although although parts of their ministry are in that pre-glorified state if there's that association there because an earthquake happens subsequently afterwards and after the resurrection so that's right it's it's very very interesting food for thought now you know this is all just goes in the realm of speculation and we have to understand that as such 
But if that were true, if if your supposition is true, um, it's possible that they could have been raised along with Christ when he went up into the clouds early in, in the book of Acts. Uh, it could be that uh, they choose to come and go as they please. We have reports in the Bible about people who, when you treat people who are, um, are in need, it says that sometimes you can entertain angels unawares. So mm-hmm. they're at least the angelic creatures, they can come and go, and that you don't even know that's who it was that you encountered. Um, who knows the Lord may have some special purpose for people like this <laughs> that we don't know. And again, we're, we're out on the edge of speculation here. But right. you, know, you hear strange stories from people about sure people, do, yeah. who, people who show up, do something near miraculous, and then they disappear. A lot of times people attribute it to angels. Who knows? Who knows what God's up to uh, in these right. kind of things and what he can be doing? These people possibly could be at key points in history, uh, key points to uh, be involved in the, in the Lord's work to make certain things happen. Uh, as servants to fit his, uh, you know, prophetic timing. You know, we still don't know about people like Melchizedek, for example. Uh, <laughs> someone in the Bible who had no mother or father and no birthday, no beginning and end, and mm-hmm. the Bible doesn't choose to elaborate further on it. But it, no, it, but it also doesn't humanize him either in the sense that, well, that, that's all metaphorical. Really, he was just one of us. Uh, so there are mysteries of God of which we're just scratching the surface. And I appreciate you even being, being willing to delve into some of that. Absolutely. Yeah, it's uh, it's very interesting what you're you're saying there. That we, we definitely know that angels are able to transform into human bodies. But, but as you say, here we have uh, individuals who were already resurrected into their uh, glorified bodies. And so there wouldn't even need to be, uh, you know, the possibility of them being angels. They could actually be human beings that are sent to uh, to carry out God's purposes, whatever they may be. Well, the, the Bible says that we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses. And yes. we choose to interpret those in a bunch of different ways that, um, you know, there's angels in heaven or other spiritual beings that watch us or, or whatever. Uh, one radical interpretation w- w- that could be was that these could be some of those witnesses that you're talking about. Now, this is not the same thing as s- the saints that would be believed under Romanism uh, type belief, which, you know, praying to saints and things like that it has nothing to do with that, yeah. nor communication with the dead or anything like this. First of all, these, these beings are not dead. Uh, they're alive. Uh, but but secondly, uh, you know, there, there's there's no real definition of what might go on with this. But but if you think about some of these beings, um, resurrected saints, being potential cloud of witnesses that surround us, maybe when we don't know it, uh, watching what we're doing, it's just very very intriguing concept. The other thing is that they use this description a cloud of witnesses. And mm-hmm. I know you write a lot about clouds in your book, and I want to talk about that further here in some upcoming questions. Uh, and you get it further in your second book than His Voice Shook the Earth. But there's an association with clouds and with people who can transcend dimension into the courts of heaven or into the heavenlies. And clouds are always reported to be associated with raptures, with disappearances of people, uh, whether it's Elijah taken into the clouds or, or different kind of clouds. Even when God came down to Moses, uh, a cloud was always associated with it and a cloud that transformed, which was the almost, a, for lack of a better term, a, a portal or stargate to God mm-hmm. in the course Absolutely. of heaven. So, mm-hmm. so maybe it wasn't just a metaphorical uh, slip of the tongue or allegory to say a cloud of witnesses 
when when maybe there's a hint here that uh, uh, there's interaction with the heavenlies much more than we understand. Hmm. Yeah, that's very interesting. Well, um, I, I want to move on and ask you some of these other questions because I've sort of hinted this about the uh, the uh, situation with Moses and, and God's appearance. You, you discuss a lot about the uh, a corollary to the children of Israel at Mount Sinai, and I've sort of alluded a little bit to this. Can you can you set the stage a little further on what we can learn from that scenario and maybe shed light on on what's happened later through God's plan yeah. and economy? Sure. Yeah. What I what I find interesting is that. Um, Paul the Apostle claimed to have seen the risen, resurrected uh, Lord Jesus Christ in in a couple places in two of his epistles. And he also claimed to have gone to Arabia. And it's very interesting that he says Mount Sinai is in Arabia in Galatians chapter 4. So, you know, it's very possible that after his conversion, when Paul said that he went to Arabia, that there was something else going on that we really don't know about, but other than um, we know that Mount Sinai is in Arabia, we know that Paul went there, and we know that he saw the resurrected Jesus Christ. So what I propose in the first chapter of my second book, I, I talked about a little bit in my first book, was that perhaps this is when and where Paul received many of the mysteries that he referred to throughout his epistles. Uh, mysteries such as the, the resurrection of the dead and the transformation, the mystery of the church, uh, some of the other mysteries that he mentions. Um, now, and I would, believe, this be, would this be a time when he says he entered the third heaven? Uh, I'm not sure. I think... Uh, I think that was another time. A lot of people think that was when he was almost stoned to death in uh, in one of the uh, hmm. it's described in the book of Acts, and yeah, uh, yeah. he went, went to heaven. And he didn't. He wasn't sure whether he he had died or hmm. uh, he was still alive. But that's now that's news. Okay, all right. That's news to you, huh? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, um, what I think could have happened again is um, if Paul went to a ra- we know he went to Arabia, but if Paul went to Mount Sinai in Arabia, what's interesting is all the parallels to the rapture and the, the resurrection of the dead that he describes in relaying the mystery to us. For example, um, in Exodus chapter 19 is where we find the giving of the Ten Commandments at Mount Sinai when the Lord God came down on the mountain. And he commanded Moses to tell the people to be sanctified. To wash their clothes. Well, why did you tell them that? Perhaps it was because Christians in the future need to be sanctified and, and cleansed, yeah. uh, and wash, you know, wash their by the washing of the water of the word. He, he says actually in Ephesians chapter five. Well, also so you have, if you go to the Laodicean church, uh, who mm-hmm. people if they if they assume there's a yeah, sequential talk, historical talk about the white robes revelation. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It actually mm-hmm. tells them they need to wash their robes white. Oh, uh, yes. And, you know, and that church is assumed to be the one that's right before the appearing of the Lord. And they, they need white robes to wear. And it's very uh-huh. ironic because if you go to the fifth seal, uh, suddenly uh, the martyrs who have given their lives are issued the white robes uh, mm-hmm. that they were seeking that Jesus taught. So I often wonder if those white robes are synonymous with a, a persecution that's required to be uh, properly cleaned to, you know, to meet mm. your maker. Oh, absolutely. And your husband. <laughs> you know, Jesus said, 
that we will suffer persecution in order to enter into the kingdom of God. So, uh, yeah, that's that's an interesting thought there. Um, another interesting parallel is this uh, mention of the third day. Uh, Moses was told be, to be ready by the third day um, and to not go near their wives, the, the children of Israel. So why the third day? Well, we know that Jesus said that on the third day after he had died, he would be raised. So there's an interesting parallel there. Um, another parallel is the, the sound of a trumpet or uh, the sound of God's voice in the sound of a trumpet. Exodus uh, 19, 16 and 19, when, Jesus, when, when the Lord actually came down on the mountain, on the third day, there was, uh, I'll just read it here, there was thunder and lightning and a dense cloud on the mountain. There's that cloud again. Mm-hmm. And uh, the sound of a very loud horn, and all the people, and that's shofar there in, in uh, Hebrew, and all the people in the camp trembled. And then verse 19, when the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, Moses was speaking and God was answering him with the sound. So, what's the parallel for, uh, for the resurrection and rapture event? Well, we know in 1 Corinthians 15 and 1 Thessalonians 4 that Paul said, the resurrection of the dead is accompanied for, uh, by the last trumpet or the trumpet of God. So, there's another parallel there, there with, with the resurrection to, uh, to that children of Israel experience in Mount Sinai. And of course, the last two are. Uh, you know, one else thing that's interesting too is that when sure. when Moses was gone for quite a while, the people thought he was dead. They they had given up on him. They thought maybe he had died in his time when he was right. up on the mountain, which is exactly what the disciples presumed about Jesus, not fully understanding uh, the encounter that he was having. Wow, that's interesting. Yeah, hadn't thought about that. Yeah, there's there's a pattern of a of someone dying, but then. Or, or a doubt, a, a doubt by your followers and presuming you're dead. A doubt, yeah, sure, sure. Uh, well, the uh, we know that the Lord descended on the mountain when it says, Now Mount Sinai is completely covered with smoke because the Lord had descended on it in fire. The smoke went up like the smoke of a great furnace. The whole mountain shook greatly. And, uh, of course, the Lord himself will come down or descend from heaven with a shout of command. So there's a parallel there that Paul could have been seeing or be, be shown in his uh, Mount Sinai Arabian experience. And then the final thing is Moses went up. Moses was summoned up to the top of the mountain uh, when the Lord came down in Exodus 19.20. And Christians are also summoned up, caught up, raptured, Harpaso suddenly caught up into the air to meet to meet the Lord. So, very interesting parallels there. I believe that uh, Paul was shown uh, that he relayed to us that mystery. Hmm. Yeah, and, and you can even just continue to take it further and further from there as you study that that passage further. What what are the ramifications? You know, uh, Moses was transformed. Uh, seeing God face to face, just like we're transformed when we're called to Him, it says His face glowed. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, they had to look at it like through a veil, right? Right. Yeah. And that uh, that's exactly right, right Tom. And mm-hmm. and also uh, He came down uh, with the law under His arm, and it says we'll have the law written on our hearts. Uh-huh. Uh, 
after, after. <laughs> that's a good one i hadn't thought of that one <laughs> after our, well you did your homework for this show <laughs> yeah you're sure? on a roll i tell you yeah I don't know if this is like the uh, biblical uh, analogy to puns or relationships yeah. there, but cause and effect. Uh, <laughs> there, there's relationships there, and we know there's patterns. And, and David, I, 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 I want to say this at the end of our discussion here, but, but these are examples of how you have stimulated thinking of your readers, of which I'm just one, to ponder all sorts of things, to, to consider the richness in God's Word, of things that we just simply have slumbered through, even those of us who've been raised in the church all of our life, to see possibilities and the depth of what God is doing. Uh, you know, when I hear hear you talk about God's voice, and you you go much further in your book than His voice shook the earth, which I would really like to have you back back uh, on our show and focus that on that, even just in particular, because uh, I, I my thinking when I got that book was how in the world could He outdo what He did in Earthquake Resurrection, and uh, I just I just didn't try to set myself up to be disappointed until I read it, and then I thought, oh my goodness, He's found out all sorts of new revelations beyond earthquake resurrection that just blew my mind away. So I don't want to get delve too much into that, but um, this whole connotation of God's voice sounding like a trumpet in, in, in the byproduct. When, when God speaks, things happen. Uh, things get created or transformed in the process. So, it, you know, it may be that just the fact that the speaking of God is what causes the earthquake when he speaks in a manner that, that he is doing a transformative act. Right. That the earthquake is a byproduct of just the power released through his word, spoken word, that uh, it, it results in our transformed bodies. But but earth shudders at the voice of our Lord. Absolutely. You know, uh, we know that God has different manifestations of his voice. You know, when he spoke to Elijah and still it was in a still salt, still soft voice uh, or when he whispered uh, or called out to Samuel. You know, there's different different levels, but when he was on Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 19, coming down and speaking in the voice of a trumpet, the result was a shaking of the mountain. Um, if you go to Hebrews chapter 12 and read verse 26, Paul makes it clear when he is uh, recounting what happened in Exodus chapter 19, he says, then his voice shook the earth. So it was his trumpet voice that was the cause of the shaking. Um, so it's it's really clear there. Now, to bring us into the discussion of the resurrection of the dead, you really have to look at when Paul says the trumpet of God is going to precede the resurrection of the dead or the last trumpet. What is he talking about? You know, is he talking about an actual trumpet that God blows? to his mouth and blows is he talking about the seventh trumpet of revelation um, you know of the, of the seven trumpets that are blown by angels you know they're given to the angels by God but uh, there's seven of them is, is that last trumpet what Paul is referring to um, or is there something else that we can look at and see the parallels and patterns and say this is what Paul meant when he said the last trumpet or the trumpet of God. And I believe if you study out uh, the Greek words and the, and the Hebrew words and you look at that Exodus chapter 19 event closely and compare it to what Paul said in Hebrews chapter 12, then you'll discover exactly what the trumpet of God is. And I believe that the trumpet of God is God speaking in a voice uh, 
like you said, when he uh, when he manifests himself in this world, this three-dimensional world, it causes a shaking of the earth. And I think that makes a whole lot more sense than, uh, you know, a literal trumpet that he blows or, uh, you know, the, the trumpets of Rosh Hashanah. Uh, those are, you know, really described as the trumpet of God. They're actually, you know, trumpets blown by persons here on the earth. And those that seventh trumpet is actually the, a trumpet blown by an angel. So, you yeah, know, yeah, or, or the, the trumpet could also just be an earthly allegory for us to understand of what God's voice is. That, what that, it's able to do, yeah. Right, when we, when, uh, particularly the people in the Old Testament, when, when the Hebrews would see someone stand on the wall blow a trumpet, the intention was to get them to think about this as like God speaking. This is, yes. uh, this is something that, something big has happened, and usually it's in the middle of a festival or some change in what they're doing in a well, festival. Yeah, like Gideon. I mean, you know, right. the, the trumpets and the, the whole, yeah. And and the things that shook there were the knees of the Midianites that were knocking against each other when they, <laughs> when, they when, when they heard that uh, going at the time. Uh, and, and you get in much greater detail in your next book on this association, yes. correct? Oh, I, absolutely. I, de- I dedicate a full chapter to understanding, you know, what the trumpet of God is, and you know, we really need to dig in and, and understand, and not just say. Well, I think it's this other trumpet that's mentioned over here. You know, mm-hmm. what is God? What is the trumpet of God? And Paul makes it clear that God has a voice that is able to shake the earth. And he says that it happened once in the past at Mount Sinai. And he says it's going to once more shake the earth and the heavens. And he's quoting a passage there from Haggai, chapter 2, I believe. So mm-hmm. that's a prediction that, that there's going to be a time in the future when God's voice is once more going to shake the earth and I believe that it's going to coincide with the resurrection of the dead and the opening of the sixth seal which we really haven't talked about too much Where, well I, w- <laughs> I want to get in that direction because I want to talk next about the seals and okay. discuss that a little bit but, but to set the preamble for that uh, you have implied in your book a another hypothesis that uh, the events spoken of in Revelation 4 and 5 have in a sense already happening or are happening or, or at least not happening right on the heels of what we think of the beginning of the tribulation period uh, of those who do, you know, your tri- typical dispensational pre-trib teaching. Can you elaborate further on that, on, on why you think that? Well, yes, absolutely. This is the key to understanding the uh, the whole model as far as why I believe that the the first five seals could have already been opened in the past and that we're waiting for the opening of the sixth seal. And that is an understanding of what took place in Revelation chapter 4 and 5 and when it, it took place. Now, the traditional interpretation of this is, of course, that uh, the, uh, the f- seven letters to the churches of Revelation chapters 2 and 3 are kind of a parallel of a timeline from uh, you know the beginning of the the first century up until uh, the end when Jesus returns and the Laodicean church being parallel um, and i think there's a there's some merit in that view but uh, then the the next the, the next thing that they jump to is revelation chapter 4:1 where john is told to here's the sound of a trumpet voice and is told to come up here to be shown the things that will happen hereafter. And so the interpretation of that is, well, this must be the rapture. 
because you have a trumpet voice calling John up into heaven, and you have the end of the uh, the church age. But what I go into in my book is an understanding of exactly what that scene is that John is being called up to see. You know, he's he's told to, to come up here to see things that would happen hereafter. Well, hereafter, from his point of view there in the first century, would be anything that happened from that time in the first century and then going forward. It doesn't necessarily have to mean hereafter from your perspective and my perspective as, oh, it's something that hasn't yet happened. And so what did John see up there? Well, he saw 24 elders, he saw four living creatures, and he saw a lot of angels. And he saw, of course, the throne and, and someone seated on the throne. And here's the key thing that I saw in in trying to understand when in the chronology uh, of of Bible prophecy and of Revelation the events of Revelation 4 and 5 took place. And it's the fact that John saw in the right hand of the one that was seated on the throne the scroll that was sealed with seven seals. Now, it's at this point you you don't see where – you don't see Jesus Christ – you know, we know that Jesus Christ ascended and is at the right hand of God. That's made very, very clear all throughout the New Testament, where he is at the right hand of God interceding for our prayers. Uh, immediately in Mark chapter 16, immediately after he ascended, he sat down at the right hand of God. And of course, the martyr Stephen saw Jesus standing at the right hand of God when he was uh, stoned to death in Acts chapter 7. So it's clear Jesus, if this is a a vision John was being shown of sometime in the future where the rapture has already already taken place in, in chapter 4, verse 1, then Jesus should be there at the right hand of God. In other words, it's not like, where's Waldo? Uh, <laughs> you know, I, don't, I, I don't mean to be disrespectful. I know you could pull Waldo into this <laughs> but it's, it But, it's, you know, I mean, the, 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 the other indication almost is comical that right. somebody lost Jesus and nobody can find him. And That's he's rolled right, up somewhere like that. I mean, it almost sounds absurd. But well, there's then, a great search that goes on. You know, where, who, where's one that is worthy to open the, the scroll and break the seals? Nobody could be found in earth and heaven. And, and so it's like, you know, Jesus should be there. If this is in the future and Jesus has already ascended to the right hand of God, and this is a picture of the future rapture and resurrection state, then he should be there. Well, he's not. Until... Uh, there's a call made through heaven, and all of a sudden, John sees a lamb as if it had been slain, standing in the middle of the throne. And there's a uh, great rejoicing, and, uh, well, before there's great rejoicing, there's one thing that the lamb does when he appears, and that is, he goes to the right hand of God and takes the scroll out of the right hand of God. How interesting. Jesus has prophesied to sit at the right hand of God until he makes his enemies a footstool in Psalm chapter 110, I believe. And we are told over and over in the New Testament that he did sit down at the right hand of God. Is it possible then that what John was shown is that event, that first century res- uh, ascension to the right hand of God? And now we actually know what Jesus did when he got there. 
Well, now, yes, you, he sat down there, but he, he took the scroll out of the right hand of God and began to open the seals. D- David, could you qu- quote, if you remember or have access, exactly what the angel told John when he took him up into heaven? What did he tell him that he would see when he went up into heaven? Uh, I think you're talking about... Uh, he says, here, here's what you're Revelation going to... Revelation chapter 4, right? Right. Yeah, let me take a look at that real quick and pull that up. Uh, after these things, I looked, and there was a door standing open in heaven, and the first voice I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet said, Come up here so that I can show you what must happen after these things. Okay. Is that what you're thinking of? Okay. Uh, and I, I, I guess I'm thinking of a, of a translation that I recollect that gives an indication uh, of things that are happening or happened and oh excuse me i I used the wrong reference it's earlier it's it's actually uh, yeah chapter one uh yeah if you could share that with us uh thanks for correcting me there yeah i think you're i think you're thinking of revelation 1 18 19 Mm -hmm. i am he that liveth and was dead and behold i am alive forevermore amen and have the keys of death and hell write the things which thou hast seen and the things which are and the things which shall be hereafter Right. So, so, so we already know that there's a mixture in there of things, things he has seen in his past, uh, yes. things that currently exist, and things in the future. So we, we, we better be very careful in reading in everything, every single word in a futurist standpoint, when it's clearly said that there's a mixture there. Absolutely. It's an overarching book that's putting all of recorded history in context from from the beginnings maybe of the church age on to its fulfillment. Um, and, and there's something else I'd like to add here, Dave, uh, not to interrupt you here, but it relates to what you discussed in the 24 elders. Uh, many people say, well, these 24 elders uh, have to be the, the, the 12 um, uh, sons of, of uh, Israel. Uh, right. and, and from the 12 tribes and also the 12 uh, apostles, right. which always seems strange to me, given that one of the 12 apostles, if I remember right, is John. <laughs> and here John is caught up in the heaven oh, and looking at himself. Yeah, he's double, double John. You know, unless it's like a Christmas Christmas carol or something, you know, <laughs> where he's watching, you know, and I don't mean it, but literally I just found it sort of curious. But, but uh, you know, I actually heard a prophecy teacher say that. That he was taken sort of like a Back to the Future thing, and he actually saw himself, kind of like Michael J. Fox saw himself. Great Scott. Is that right? (laughs) I actually heard a prophecy teacher say that. Wow. And he actually is uh, headquartered very close to where you guys uh, live. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, I I wonder if, uh, you know, if they touched or something, would that change history or something like that? It's pretty strange. But uh, regarding these 24 elders, I just wanted to share something with you and our listeners uh, that might add some further elaboration in this. Uh, uh, Brother, um, um, oh, it just escaped me, J.R. Church's right-hand man, Gary Stearman. Yes. Uh, Pastor Gary Stearman shared an interesting story a few issues ago in probably the news of his research, and he proposes that that whole event... Uh, actually, it talked about in the course of heaven, but right before the opening of the seals, is in fact a trial that is ongoing, and that the scroll with the seals is actually an indictment, indictment of the sins of the earth. Yes. Now, this ties in very interestingly with some of the research I know you and Peter Goodgame and others have done regarding the whole book of Revelation being uh, sort of an explanation of a cosmic day of atonement that occurs. 
and mm-hmm. that it actually is a full fulfillment or the, of what's been foreshadowed in the day of day of atonement. But if in fact what we're looking at is a courtroom drama that occurs, uh, I did a little research myself on these 24 elders, and, and in fact, um, uh, if you look at the history of a grand jury, uh, a grand jury uh, has uh, uh, 23 members and a leader, if I if I remember correctly. Wow. So that actually is what makes up a grand jury. And if you look up the history of a grand jury, you'll find the history in our legal profession of grand jury came from Israel and came from the Hebrew people uh, from uh, what was known then as a minor Sanhedrin. Oh, my goodness. A minor Sanhedrin was wow. 24 people. They actually governed all of the affairs within the state. As I understand it, so they didn't deal with uh, foreign policy, for example. They dealt with internal affairs of state. Uh, they were overseen by a uh, a uh, the major Sanhedrin, which included the seventy. Seventy, uh huh. That oversaw them. Now, if you see a spiritual relationship here, of you know, as it is in heaven, so on earth, of which there's a cl- clean picture of that elsewhere in uh, in Revelation, where we see an ark and the temple in heaven, like we had on earth. Uh, if you picture the overarching authority of these 70, it's very interesting when you compare those uh, to what other researchers have talked about, the 70 Benai Elohim, or sons of God, who were placed over the nations of the earth. Uh, yes. There are 70 nations, and, and elsewhere in Scripture it says, the nations were numbered according to the numbers of the sons of God. Absolutely. And so if you look at this relationship of 70, who basically squandered their management of these other nations, whereas... Uh, the Lord God, who uh, made Abraham and, and Israel his own portion, uh, dealt with justly in their ju- in their judge, I believe, in Psalm 84, for their mismanagement. But if you look at them as sort of a cosmic uh, group that's being judged, they're actually being judged by a lower court, uh, and that is this minor Sanhedrin or 24 elders. Another thing that's very interesting about this group, and I researched it further, is that if mm-hmm. I understand it right, the courtroom where these uh, this minor Sanhedrin met was in a room that was built halfway into the holy place uh, in the area of the Jews and half into the court of the Gentiles. It was hmm. a room that straddled it through That's the through the wall. And so, if this was a pattern, what do you make of that? well, if there's a pattern of that uh, from from a uh, heavenly perspective, if there's such hmm. a room like that in heaven, a dimensional room, then when when if John was called up to that room. You notice the angel directs him to look in in certain directions, and he sees activities around the throne of God, which I think would be a corollary to the direction of the doors open leading into the temple. Okay. Uh, the, there's other doors where he's told to look out on, onto the earth and sees what's happening in the last days when the kings of earth are doing their wickedness. And I almost right. envision John standing uh, in this uh, heavenly version of this room looking at both doors, one into the the heavenly place and one into the profane place of the Gentiles and he's actually watching evidence being paraded before him that relate to the seals wow now, that's that's fascinating now this is a discussion for another day and I'd like to talk to you further about this related to what the other the, the first four seals mean and how they relate to the sins of the earth because this would relate to I, I believe I can tie those four seals to the four judgments that are seen elsewhere in Revelation. But I know that's for another day. But what I want to thank you, uh, Brother David, is that you've actually provided uh, some new and original thinking in God's Word to make some of these kind of thoughts possible. (laughs) 
And obviously, a lot of these things won't hold water when they're scrubbed further and weighed in light of God's word. And and as iron sharpens iron, we discuss these things further. But you have opened the door for people to even consider some of these kind of things. So I just think it's an immeasurable gift you've given to all of us to even look at some of these things. And I I have been blessed to an untold degree about the things that were illuminated in Scripture just by what you've implied in your book. Oh, I appreciate that. So I, I think you're very, very successful in that regard. Yeah, in case you can't tell, he's, he's read your book a I'm few so, dozen times. I'm, <laughs> sort of, I'm sort of keen on it. If you uh, Hey, I want to ask one other kind of uh, um, different area before we, we sort of get into the wrap-up of the, uh, the ramifications of, uh, of what you've done. Isaiah 26 has another interesting passage that you talk about as well. Uh, that you say relates to the resurrection and catching up. Can you explain that very briefly for us on, on how you think that has a, has a futuristic uh, fulfillment? Sure, yeah. Well, the passage is uh, Isaiah chapter 26. Let's see. Pretty much verses uh, 18 through 21 and then on to 27 verse 1. Um, the whole passage if you look at 27 verse 1, is referring to the time of the day of the Lord. Uh, 27 one real quickly reads, In that day the Lord with his sore and great and strong sword shall punish Leviathan, the piercing serpent, even Leviathan, the crooked serpent, and he shall slay the dragon that is in the sea. Uh, so that kind of puts it in the context of the day of the Lord when the Lord comes out of his place to, uh, to carry out a judgment. And what the passage actually says that's interesting is, I'll just start with verse 18, um, where it says, We have been with child. We have been in pain. We have, as it were, brought forth wind. We have not wrought any deliverance in the earth, neither have the inhabitants of the world fallen. Verse 19, Thy dead men shall live. Together with my dead body they shall arise. Awake and sing, ye that dwell in the dust, for thy dew is as the dew of herbs, and the earth shall cast out the dead. So first let's stop there and say this appears to be a description of a resurrection of the dead. Some some persons that have been dead are going to be res- resurrected. And of course we know in the future we're awaiting the resurrection of the dead in Christ. So there's sort of a parallel there. Well, are there any other parallels with what we'd expect? We would expect to see uh, perhaps a, a catching up and a hiding away uh, out of harm's way. And as we continue to read, it states, Come, my people, enter thou into thy chambers, and shut thy doors about thee. Hide thyself, as it were, for a little moment, until the indignation is overpassed. So there, the people of God are going to enter into a place where they're hidden, until something takes place, until the indignation of the Lord takes place. And so this is um, in the next verse where we find out what indignation is talking about. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth for their iniquity. So the earth shall disclose the blood on it and no more cover her slain. This is the day of the Lord. This is when the Lord comes out of his place to punish the inhabitants of the earth. And so we have a resurrection first, and we have a call for the people to come into their chambers. So I think this uh, this places these events in the in the time of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's wrath, when He pours out the wrath 
that he's always that he's promised for so long and that the prophets have talked about for promised for so long and it actually parallels perfectly with what Paul described as far as a resurrection of the dead and a catching up uh, to be with the Lord okay and there's a, and there's a time of sequestering that goes on during this period of time clearly as well uh-huh. right sequestering yes there's your courtroom <laughs> reference right that's right uh protect protecting the innocent while uh, judgment judgment is meted out absolutely that's that's a good point and, and it's interesting too because many of these people serve as witnesses just like uh, when an execution is transformed is uh conducted uh you still have to have witnesses amongst the community to show that justice has in fact been meted out Mm-hmm. And uh, those those uh, witnesses are in heaven at the time. Um, uh, one one quick thing I want to clarify, and this is a whole other kettle of fish, but if you can answer this quickly, and then we'll have you back to explore the the full depths of this. You mentioned the day of the Lord. Can mm-hmm. you very quickly explain what you think the day of the Lord means? Uh, I know we don't want to get too deep into it because uh, we'll have you back. I may get some email about this. Uh, we can discuss this further. So quickly share that and explain that to us. Well, um, I'm not quite sure how you, what you're thinking of there, but what I, what I believe it is is uh, the day of the Lord's wrath is a time when the trumpet and bold judgments are poured out on the earth. In other words, you don't see it as the last 24 hours before Jesus comes down and wipes out the Antichrist. No, I don't. And, and that's because there's a passage in Revelation chapter 6 which states unequivocally that uh, the great day of his wrath had come and it's at a certain point just after the opening of the sixth seal when there's a great earthquake and there is uh, mm-hmm. all kinds of volcanic and catastrophic things happening on the earth. The kings of the uh, earth actually say, make that proclamation, yes, right? Yes, right. the kings of the earth state um, who is going to fall, uh, hide us from the face of the one that sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb for the great day of their wrath is come, and who shall be able to stand? So there's a proclamation right there that the day of God's, the Lord's wrath had come. And what happens next? Well, there's a, a ceremony in heaven, uh, in there in Revelation chapter 8, and then immediately after that, there is the opening, of the, uh, the blowing of the trumpets, and the, later the, the bold judgment. So that's what I believe is meant by the day of the Lord's wrath that right after that sixth seal is open is when that time begins. Mm-hmm. So, okay. is that kind of what you had in mind? Yeah, there? yeah, and uh, because I think understanding the day of the Lord is key to understanding oh, yes. writings of yours, of Peter Goodgame, and of a number of other writers. And in fact, uh, maybe one day we can even have a roundtable uh, with a lot of you in, in your group and, and discuss cool. about this. Yeah. And the, uh, because I, I'll have to say, when, when I began to look at the Day of the Lord after reading your writings and others as something other than a 24-hour period at the end of time, suddenly a lot of other passages started to make a lot more sense. Yeah. And things started to fall in a more logical chronology uh, when that happened. And I think it's worthy of people who, who don't buy that right now listening to us. Um, I, I recommend you look into it and offer some debate and question, and, and we'll all be the better for that. Um, the uh, Sort of wrapping things up on, on this discussion, um, what, what are some parts of Scripture, to be fair, uh, mm-hmm. that you think are the most challenging to rationalize with your premise? Well, um I think one of the 
one of the passages that is the most challenging that in at least in my mind is <clears throat> if we are going to associate the opening of the sixth seal with uh the resurrection of the dead um, and, a, and a catastrophic event taking place on the earth um, why is there no mention of a resurrection of the dead in uh, in the description of the opening of the sixth seal you know we have a description of a great earthquake right when that sixth seal is open we have mountains and, isle- and islands moving and perhaps pole shifts and all, all other sorts of things that are taking place but um you know, there's no res- mention of a resurrection of the dead. So why does it fit there? Yeah. And why does why is there a rap- why is a rapture fit there? Well, now if I could um, take a David Lope David Lope position on that, I think that's very fair in what you're saying. But yes. if we notice the next seal, we see people of every nation, tribe, and in tongue, clad in those white robes of the saints. Yeah. And before that was going to be my yeah, that was going to be my response. <laughs> you know, it, if if the resurrection and rapture did take place at that point, what, what would we expect to see? We would expect to see a large number of people in heaven, right? <laughs> yeah. And lo and behold, immediately after that, John is shown a large, enormous group of people that no man could number who are described in all the terms that you would expect the remnant body of Christ to be described in. And there they are in front of the throne. Mm-hmm. So... That's one response to that to that challenge right there. Mm-hmm. Okay. Any, any other passages that you find uh, test it to its greatest degree? Some of your suppositions. Yeah. The one passage that we talked about earlier was, um, you know, the many saints, and uh, you know, I touched on a lot of people believe that because of the parallel section in Luke, where there is no mention of the many saints coming out of their graves and being resurrected, um, there is. <clears throat> there is no mention of shaking of the earth and uh, at his resurrection, and it, it makes more sense in the reading of Luke that that uh, that the, sh- the earth shaking and the rocks splitting apart uh, took place at the time of his death. And so you really have to uh, walk through that passage in Matthew and understand what uh, what Matthew is trying to tell us there, in order to to grasp when. That shaking of the earth took place. You know, a lot of people will, will challenge me and say, you know, there, I, I don't see a resurrection at his, at his, I'm sorry, I don't see an earthquake at his resurrection. I see it at the time of his death. So a little bit of a challenge there as well. But, but something we didn't talk about that I would respond to that is, um, the Shroud of Turin, which I dedicate a large portion of earthquake resurrection to. And I've recently uh, watched a, a new video on the shroud, and I'm convinced more than ever that it actually is the sh- barrow shroud of Jesus Christ, and that there was a, an amazing event that took place right at the at the time of his resurrection, and and that there was a shaking of the earth at that time. So, okay, all right, and uh, and regardless of what happened in regarding uh, Jesus and his transformation, uh, mm-hmm. and and the other saints. Whether or not the other saints were uh, transformed into uh, glorified bodies or not, while mm-hmm. while that's an intriguing possibility, it's not a requirement for your association again between earthquakes and glorification. Yes, the, that's the, correct. The glorification of Christ alone could be adequately in, enough to explain the earthquake, although the magnitude throughout the throughout the city. 
could be an estimate that at least some number of saints also experience that as well. Absolutely, yes. Okay. So those would be some of the more challenging okay. problems that I get, yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's just such a far-reaching thought that people have a hard time stepping out of the box of what they've been taught to think that it takes most people quite a bit of time to get their arms around it to even begin to challenge many things, to, to even just fully grasp what the ramifications are of what yeah, you put, put before us. You know, right when you said that, you brought to mind another one, and that's where I, we were just talking about in Revelation chapter 5, the lamb appears uh, in the middle of the throne room. And the argument is, well, you know, Jesus was already there. He had always been in the throne room, and, and now it was just John seeing him there for the first time. And it doesn't mean that he had just ascended mm-hmm. uh, in the first century and placing this in the first century, which is what my model suggests. Rather, um, you know, they they can't get past that idea that this is a, a vision of something that John saw in the future. And so they, they would rationalize that and say, you know, Jesus was there. It's just that, you know, John hadn't seen him yet. Mm-hmm. Well, also the song that is <laughs> sung at that time, uh, the heavenly creatures. Some people will say that it implies that those who are singing are expressing themselves as being redeemed. Therefore, they believe that only raptured saints who could be the ones who could sing that song. Do you have any brief comments on that? Yeah, that's another interesting point. It is called a new song that they, the four living creatures and the 24 elders sing. And the content of the song is interesting uh, because it talks about... Uh, you have the Lamb had purchased people from every tribe and kindred and tongue and nation and made them a kingdom of priests and that they would reign on the earth. Um, these are things that took place in the first century. These are things Jesus purchased us in the first century when he was crucified and rose from the dead and ascended. And uh, the kingdom of priests was something that John actually mentioned in Revelation chapter 1. It was already in place, this new priesthood that Jesus established. It's it's not you, something you, you are a royal priesthood, not you Absolutely. will be. Peter said that, yes. Yeah. Peter chap, First Peter chapter 1 or 2, uh, you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood. They were already a kingly priesthood, a kingdom of priests. So, um, yeah, the content of the song suggests that this wasn't... It, for, in order for it to be a new song, you're not going to wait uh, 2,000 years into the future to start singing this new song about Jesus purchasing and ma- people and making them a kingdom of priests, purchasing them with his blood that was shed. This is something that happened very recently, 40 days ago, You know, for, from the time he rose from the dead until he ascended. A very, very recent thing. If, if this is actually a picture of his uh, vision of his resurrection of his ascension, and so this new song makes perfect sense if it's sung in the first century. It really doesn't make a whole lot of sense if it's sung, uh, you know, two thousand years perhaps into the future. Right, and, and also so. people should remember that uh, human beings are are not the only people who are blessed by Jesus' death on the cross. It says all of creation groans. Uh, awaiting the redemption of the sons of men and actually mm-hmm. awaiting the recreation of the heavens and the earth. So there are blessings that go beyond merely mankind based upon Christ's act on the cross. Oh, absolutely. That's a great point. And that's something people should remember. Well, um, lo- looking at, we're here in our last ten minutes or so of the interview. Um, what have been what have been the comments of some prominent members in the religious community 
and particularly those who are in the area of Bible prophecy, said pro and con about uh, your work and any other events you could share that's transpired as as a you know aftermath of you releasing this book. Yeah, well, uh, you try to try to uh, not ignore the con, but uh, try to put that to. Uh, I don't know, put it to the side, but some of the uh, the challenging challenges I received were perhaps from uh, Jack Kelly, um, who has a popular pre-tribulation website, um, saying that he uh, he looked into it a little bit, but uh, you know didn't really think that the the ideas had much merit. Um, that, that's the challenge is to, is to get the prominent members of Bible prophecy to actually consider the work of, of someone like myself. Who did, did, did he mention any ironclad scriptures that you clearly contradicted? No, actually, I don't think he did. It's just, it's just a matter of interpretation and, and not being able to, kind of like you said, think out of the box and, and consider portions of scripture in a new light. So, um, you know, getting, getting the... Uh, entrenched Bible prophecy teachers to consider something new as a challenge because, you know, all of their livelihood and is uh is banked on a theory and a and a, a set of presuppositions that they've already written books about and made videos about and so to consider something new and, and to change um you know based on one person's book mm-hmm. would be is is a high hurdle mm-hmm. to it, uh, it rocks the boat. People have a yeah. lot of money invested in a lot of books. They've been pushing theories that haven't been updated in 20 years. They're still presenting the same information without any kind of further progress and understanding. And here mm-hmm. comes along somebody like you, and all you ask is, just look at my work and critique it in light of the Word of God, and let me know what you find. Advise me uh, where necessary. And you get feedback like, "Well, it, my hunch is it probably probably not good." Uh, that, that I just I just find that uh, amazing that people would not grasp this, be intrigued by it. That sometimes I wonder if they in fact feel threatened by you know new findings. And I'm not putting words in your mouth. This is just my no, opinion. I think, uh, yeah, I, I think that's that's correct. It's even got to the point where uh, um, the thoughts of the the six seal. A catastrophic model have been banned by certain websites from even being discussed because uh, they don't fit into the traditional pre-tribulation view. Even though um, you know it's been explained that this is a pre, uh, you know, pre-six seal, pre-wrath of God, pre-tribulation, if you want to call it, view. Um, you know, it, it's just a new wrinkle and a new way of looking at. And the key, the key is the opening of the first seal because that is where you know. The traditional model will say is the Antichrist coming in, in the future, whereas according to my model, that first seal is the uh, the spirit of Antichrist opened in the first century, and that's probably something we can talk about in the future. But um, but even if one were to have a debate on that, that's a fascinating debate amongst yeah. followers in the Lord and Bible-believing Christians that seek to know uh, God's plans further and, mm-hmm. and to summarily dismiss some of these findings without the opportunity of what kind of insights they might provide uh, I, I think is shameful in, in my opinion. I personally witnessed the things that you described uh, and I know you personally have been over backwards to be respectful to those in the establishment uh, in the Bible prophecy world and have gone over backwards to even share your book sometimes free of charge uh, yes. to people to get, just ask for feedback, ask for just a ask good for honest feedback. critique 
and uh, I, I found that uh, it, it's almost almost like a mafia sometimes. Of, uh, <laughs> they they don't you know they don't want somebody new coming into the into the game. And again, I'm not putting words yeah. in your mouth. These are my words, but um, I, it's just something that I've observed because I have been so enriched and blessed. And believe me, I've been blessed by these other writers and what they've done for all these years. Oh, absolutely. But they haven't yeah. moved the bar forward in our understanding. Uh, right. The book of Daniel says in the last days knowledge will greatly increase. And I think this should also happen within the uh, the household of faith as well, too, in the last mm -hmm. days. And I will yeah. personally say in the you formed a uh, sort of an, an ad hoc uh, board, message board of people who studied some of these things among some other writers. And that had mm -hmm. to be the most mind-blowing and fruitful discussion and read I've ever read in any kind of religious forum I've ever been a part of. Some, some of the most intelligent, deep, spiritual people I've ever encountered uh, that were sharpening each other's iron sharpens iron in this group. And I considered it almost a camelot of uh, biblical research and critiquing. And I'm just hoping this is the beginning of that. I do too, yeah. I agree. That That is a great forum to uh, to talk with the others. Uh, Doug Burner, Peter Good Games, some of the others, like and yourself. So mm -hmm. there's a usual now, lineup of suspects. Yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. Now there have been uh, not not to say that it's all been negative. There have been s uh, a whole lot of great positive things that have been said about it. Uh, and you know, Tom Horn, I think you know very well, mm -hmm. has uh, said some great things about it. Ray Gano of Prophezine has said some good things about it. And uh, there's others that aren't coming to mind, but but it's you know regular people like myself and you know, like you, you guys, that um, I get the the greatest joy out of because I get their emails and uh, the great things that they say that they've they've the scripture has been opened up to them and they see things in a new way, kind of like you were saying. So that really uh, that's where I give glory to the Lord and just thank Him for for helping me to write the book and and to get the ideas out there. Well, of those who write in these areas and in in sort of the alternative Christian prophecy area yes. of, of scriptural biblical prophecy I, I think you have been the most successful and certainly the the biggest innovator in marketing uh, without having a large uh, book publisher behind you without having a large infrastructure to sort of carry you along uh, you have been incredible in the places where I find that your book has been or or you have and and with some really first-rate quality uh, marketing materials and things that you've done yourself and I just think you really set the example for other people, uh, particularly our listeners here who are doing work in this area, to to learn from the example that you set. Um, we, we're in the last few minutes, uh, and I want to I want to have you back to um, discuss your book. Then his voice shook the earth, which is another cataclysmic book. Um, but I don't want to spoil it. We'll call, if you don't mind, I'd like to have you back to come discuss that. Would that be all right? Yeah, that'd be great. Okay. In our last couple of minutes, I want you to tell us how we can get your books. And we can find your website, what we'll find there. And also, it sounds like you're you're getting ready to start some other big ventures yourself. So can you lay that on us in the last few minutes about what's underway right now? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you can go to the website, which is uh, earthquakeresurrection.com. If you just go onto Google and search Earthquake Resurrection, it'll, it'll be the first thing that comes up. And uh, there you can read excerpts. You can read a synopsis of the book. Um, kind of one thing we didn't te uh, talk about was what does this uh, shaking of the earth mean for the for the future resurrection of the dead? You know, if we multiply this uh, power and this shaking and the, and the trumpet of God that's going to take that that took place in the past, 
what is going to happen when there's millions and millions of people that are resurrected in the moment in the blinking of an eye and and uh, what is uh, and if it takes place all around the globe what is going to be the effects of that and so yeah, you can read more about that on the website that uh, the implications of of what we're saying for this for the future resurrection of the dead in Christ um yeah, some of the projects I'm working on, I'm putting the uh, the book on audio, so both books on audio actually. So if uh, if you like to subscribe to iTunes or listen to MP3s in your car, you can do that. You can listen to the book and instead of uh, or in addition to reading it. So and those will be free of charge on iTunes or just going to my website and looking at that. I'm also uh, got a blog going and and a podcast going, which will be uh, I'll be covering. You know, current events and, and some Bible study and just things that I come across in Scripture that I want to pass on to, to people who subscribe. So, Do you have a web link for that yet? What's that? The uh, uh, web address, URL address for your podcast? For the blog, yeah. Um, it, I'm not sure what the, the feed burner and the exact address is, but if you go to my website, at the very, very top of the screen is the, the widget that allows you to uh, subscribe to that. Okay. And then there's a link also off to the right where they can subscribe to iTunes. All right. Well, uh, your link will be uh, at futurequake.com. Uh, we will have this interview and the shows of this week, the comprising interview, archived at futurequake.com. And there's a lot of people here whose jaws have dropped riding in the car. Yeah, mine. Trying, to <laughs> <laughs> trying to digest all of this. And uh, it'll be there for people to, as, as MP3s, to listen, study. I know you've been getting on my case, David, to uh, get in the regular podcasting uh, circle. I may need your help sometime to... Uh, uh, get Dr. Future, who's, who's a little anachronistic, uh, <laughs> caught up in the 21st century. So I may need your oh, help come on now. with that. Uh, hey, we're doing something, doing a Skype interview. That's that's big time. <laughs> that, was, that was a deal. That yeah. was a deal here. Yeah, that was a big deal. At least it's not tin cans like we used to do. <laughs> uh, but, uh, but we'll need your help to get that going. But uh, you are someone who people need to keep their eye on and be aware of what you're doing. You're a mover and shaker. Um, you are breaking down walls and limitations. Uh, and it, you're, you're going to make it easier for other people who come behind you because of the new ground that you've tread. And I just want to thank you personally for that. Oh, I appreciate it. Yeah, that's really important is, is for people to consider the ideas and expand on it. You know, don't, mm-hmm. uh, you know, read it and then consider what else, what are the implications of certain things that, that are in the book? And, you know, what can we, how can we go further mm-hmm. and understand more? So. And, and in your blog, you're going to be talking a little bit about what you think is going on, current events, and things like that too, right? Sure thing. Which will be even even more uh, provocative, even than some of the comments in your own books. Perhaps, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> well, brother David, thank you for joining us, and thank you for uh, educating us and all of our listeners about some of your work. And hopefully, that uh, that will initiate a journey for many of them to understand further your other research and work and open new vistas and doors like it has for me. You're welcome. Uh, it was real nice talking to you guys. Yeah, well, thanks hey, for coming on, man. Goodness. You come, it was great. Come by regularly, okay, and uh, update us. We want to talk about your other book yeah. and uh, maybe find out some, some other feedback. I understand you made it in a Walmart. Is that right? With, with uh-huh. your book? <laughs> yes. One of my readers, they, they saw the book in, in Walmart, which totally shocked me. Yeah. And it was in Arkansas, so <laughs> Well, that, that, even more shock. that makes you establishment now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, hey, Brother David, thank you so much for joining us tonight, and uh, we'll be back in touch with you soon, okay, for our next discussion. 
Okay, guys. Thanks a lot. Thank Thanks you. again. We'll see you. Nothing can change the shape of things. Nothing can change the shape of things to come. Welcome back to the Future Quake Show. I am Dr. Future. And I am Tom Bionic. And it's great to have you back again for another Friday in a another tomorrow's tremors or today's review of the future's news. It's Newsday, baby. Yeah. <laughs> this is the time where we actually get to be on for a yeah, few minutes. There you go. We hope everybody has enjoyed your interview uh, this week with our with our guest this week. Hopefully, it was an um, uh, interesting discussion with uh, our guest. I enjoyed it. Yeah, David Lowe is a fascinating person. Yeah, um, I think we actually have some stories. You've actually picked some stories out that sort of relate uh, to the earthquake yeah, topic there. Yeah, some earthquake topics here. Yeah. By all means, get his book, Earthquake Resurrection, and mm-hmm. then his voice shook the earth. Um, he is a very interesting writer and just a good believer in the Lord and uh, just wholeheartedly support what he's doing. Uh, but we're going to review some news right now. And by the way, mm-hmm. we'd like to get some emails from you all. And uh, later on in the show, Merv will tell you how to contact us. But we would like to have some more emails to review. We've had some people suggesting some guests. We've even had some really top-name people who have since contacted us uh, yeah. since our new I guests here. I guess we're becoming big, big old kingmakers now. We're kingmakers. <laughs> that's right. It's on. The, I know probably the two political candidates will be start pleading yeah. with us through their staff. I, I actually, you know, I did field a call, two phone calls from Obama's staff last night. Is that right? I, did. I told them night. I was busy and. Well, I, I actually met with them in the house of Diane Feinstein. Oh, really? Yeah. She lives in a house? Well, that was after the Bilderberg meeting. I did talk to him there. Oh, I ran into him at Bilderberg there. Did you? Yeah, me and Kissinger were, were hanging out talking. Well, yeah. Yeah, I was there with uh, Rockefeller. I used oh, to yeah. in the Rockefeller group. That's right. Did he make any more produ- provocative comments? Or? Well, we stay in the same camp there at Bohemian Grove. Oh, yeah. And we stay in his, his outfit. Well, there you go. Yeah. <laughs> just We're just bragging about you our and, connections here. Yes. Oh, yes. Um, but we have some stories uh, that we want to share with you about uh, what's going on in the world. And um, last time we humiliated ourselves with rock, paper, scissors, um, what do you, how does it mean we decide who goes first this time? Um, I don't know. I think we may have to rock, paper, scissors, redux here. Well, yeah, if you want to go first, you can... Okay, uh, I'll, I'll you know, go. I'll go, because I think you won last time. I thought, like, as a Christian, you were supposed to, like, defer to me, say, no, brother. Yeah, well, yeah, I'll but my first. crown is so full of, full of, you know... Jewels. Jewels. Full of stuff, yeah. Yeah, it's just, it's getting heavy at this point, okay. you know? Okay, <laughs> okay, well, let's go on and get a story. We're kidding, here. folks, we're kidding. Let's get, let's get a story, lay okay. it on us, bud. All right, well, uh, the one that I have here is about, um, you know, I grew up in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, a very, very interesting place to grow up, for sure. Not a whole lot of Christians there. Um, the Vallejo City Council uh, voted to declare bankruptcy Tuesday night after months of last-ditch wrangling failed to rescue the city from financial catastrophe. The North Bay City of 117,000 now heads into largely uncharted territories. No California city of this size has ever opted for this route. Well, make sure you're, you're, what you're hitting us with, or you didn't give a preamble here. You've, you're talking about a major city in California. I am talking about... A major city in California declaring so, bankruptcy. So it's not just families now that are foreclosing or are turning their keys in mm-hmm. or walking away. You have an entire city now that has gotten hit by the subprime and a all the other investments. A large city of 117,000 people. With it used to have a Mare Island Naval Shipyard, which used to employ 25 to 30,000 people. Uh, it was one of the major military hubs there uh, on the West Coast. Mm-hmm. Uh, there were it was the the pack sub fleet base for a long time okay uh it it's a big deal and now this this uh uh 
the city's declaring bankruptcy. So, so, but it's basically a city who's gotten hit by all of these greedy investment deals that other people, other corporations have been burned on, Wall mm-hmm. Street banks have been burned, mm-hmm. individuals have been burned on mm-hmm. these teaser rates of stuff, and now we're actually having cities themselves that are falling victim to it. Yes. Okay. Sorry to interrupt you. That's okay. I'm glad you were there to clarify. Presume. Proceed, uh, <laughs> I mean. Uh, this has been a long, frustrating process for everyone. Are you just are you reading the story, or are you just talking about being with me? Oh, that's in the story. I'm that's sorry. in the story. I thought you were speaking well, parenthetically. Yeah. Well, you know, it is sort of double entendre there. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> this has been a long, frustrating process for everyone. Now you're talking about our oh, listeners. D- <laughs> uh, Dr. Future, you're too funny. Didn't I see you doing stand-up a couple of weeks ago? Yeah, I'm still trying to find what I can do. Yeah, <laughs> and even funnier, even more succinct. Back to uh, the hell. Yeah. <laughs> uh, anyway, city manager Joseph Tanner said, there are no winners here tonight. <laughs> After four hours of discussion and public com- comment from the standing room only crowd, the council voted 7-0 to zero to approve Tanner's recommendation to declare Chapter 9 bankruptcy protection as a means to reorganize its finances, which have been shattered by spiraling public employee salaries and the plummeting housing market. The move allows the city to freeze its debts while maintaining city services. Police, fire, and other unions, and many in the audience were outraged at the move, accusing the council of poor leadership. The city suffers from mismanagement and has let less debt than it claims, says a union, said a union spokesman, Ken Shoemaker, a representative of the electrical union. I think I might know him. Hmm. Vallejo faces a $16 million shortfall and no money in its reserve account for the fiscal year beginning July 1. In March, the city shaved several million dollars from its payroll, museums, public works, senior centers, libraries, and other services to avoid bankruptcy, but needed to make further cuts to meet increased expenses in the, in the next fiscal year. The city and its police and fire unions held a final contract negotiating session Sunday but failed to reach an agreement before Tuesday's city council meeting. The city and its public safety unions have been been at the bargaining table for about two years. The city is asking for its police and firefighters to take salary, benefit, and staff cuts, while the unions say any further cuts would endanger public safety as well as the safety of the police and firefighters. Vallejo spends 74% of its $80 million general fund budget on public safety salaries, significantly higher than the state average. Uh, well, because it's a pretty rough town. Yeah, that sounds like a well, it sounds like a lot of church budgets with some of their salaries sometimes. Well, I tell you, this uh, Vallejo is is uh, a little bit rougher than most towns that people might be uh, used to here in the in the listening area. Oh, really? Yes. Okay. A little bit a little bit rougher. Huh. <clears throat> the generous contracts are the result of deals struck in the 1970s following a police strike that left the city in turmoil. Yeah. Well, there's places that you know, there's places that I wouldn't want to go in in Vallejo. Uh, in the daytime, so it doesn't surprise me that... Uh, and we'd like to say hi to all of our Viejo listeners here. We <laughs> hope you appreciate the characterization. Yeah, well, that's why I use a you pseudonym. Know, you're not getting a job in their Chamber of Commerce, I'm I guessing. am. Yeah, well, of course not. They're going bankrupt. Well, They don't have a Chamber of Commerce yeah, right now. You thought of everything. I'm here. Um, let's see, what else? We're just about... Let me skip to the end here. What's unknown is whether bankruptcy will dissolve the city's labor contracts which most city hall staffers say is the primary reason for the final financial mess. A judge will have to decide whether to dissolve the contracts. Vallejo became the second California city to declare bankruptcy, but the first to do so because of long-term economic woes. Desert Hot Springs, also know that city, 
in Riverside County declared bankruptcy in 2001 after losing a lawsuit brought by a developer. Orange County declared bankruptcy in 1994 after losing $1.6 billion in bad investments. Cities and counties throughout the state are in a predicament similar to Vallejo's, and many are watching to see what happens in the North Bay City over the next few months. Uh, translation, there might be more city bankruptcies coming. Wow. If the regional and national econo economy suffered another down year, numerous Bay Area cities, especially those highly dependent on the housing market for property and transfer tax revenues, are likely to be investigating bankruptcy options. Wow. Now, we know that one of our prior guests, who we need to have back on our show, Mish, the yeah. economic expert, mm -hmm. um, has been uh, spotlighting the city, and he predicted way ahead of time they were going to end up in bankruptcy. He did, he did almost almost a year ago, I think. Yeah, amongst his other good predictions. Yeah. And uh, he also exposed the fact, you, you alluded to their part of their budget spent on salaries. Mm -hmm. They had just about all of their civil servants above a hundred grand. Now I know California is an expensive city. Yeah, but it ain't it ain't that expensive. But uh, I mean that, that I mean it was just enormous the kind of salaries that your you know like animal control people were getting and things like that. Oh yeah, well like I said, um, not to defend them, but to help explain it. You know, first of all, the Bay Area is an incredibly expensive place to live. Uh, as anecdotal evidence to that, I had a friend of mine buy a house. Uh, in the El Cerrito area, which is just north of Berkeley, he was paying $3,600 a month for a 1,500-square-foot house. Oh, my goodness. Yeah. Think about that. For $3,600 a month for uh, for a small house, relatively small house. Why does everybody stay? Um, if you are in the – well, first of all, some people really like the diversity in the sort of New Age occultism. To be honest, okay. <laughs> I, let me just lay that right yeah, out there. Yeah, sure. Uh, and there's plenty of that there. Yeah. Um, as far as the South Bay, you know, it's it's one of the big hubs for uh, the technology thing. Right. And I know a lot of IT people live there because of that. And you know, if you're an IT guy in San Jose, you know, you can make eighty thousand dollars a year without too much problem. So it sort of offsets it. You know, that sounds like a lot of money to a lot of our listeners. But, but when it, you're talking it about it that expense, it won't go that far. Boy, I tell you, man, moving out here to uh, to the you know the quote unquote flyover country here, yeah. it was like people would tell me what what they were paying a month for housing, right. and I was like, is it a shack? Yeah, <laughs> right. Is it a tent? Right. It's you just know? it's a different world. Yeah. And and also to clarify to our listeners too, this is not just a problem in California, which a lot of times we see mm -hmm. as sort of an anomalous environment in America, mm -hmm. uh, an even larger city that is now going through the same process is Birmingham, Alabama. Yeah, they made Just a south number of, of bad, uh, bad investments with mm -hmm. uh, municipal bonds through right. a, a bad insurer, and now it looks like they're gonna, the city of Birmingham, Alabama is going to have to declare bankruptcy. A huge city. Yeah. And I think this is just the tip of the iceberg. Mm -hmm. uh, it's not just going to hit individual families. It's just not going to hit Wall Street banks. It's going to hit our major cities. Mm -hmm. So either they're going to have to raise taxes dramatically. That's going to impact all of us. There's going to be all sorts of things changing. Mm -hmm. And uh, I sure hope you're close to the Lord. I hope you have a good relationship with him mm -hmm. because we don't mean to be a downer show, but we've got potentially some really dark things ahead. Yeah, there's a lot of shaking going on and yeah. in, that I see, I foresee coming. Yeah. And uh, a lot of our guests as well, and it's right. It's good. It might be good to start preparing for that now. You well, know? you know, there, there may be a lot of local and state jobs that disappear, mm -hmm. while at the same time the feds are hiring as fast as they can mm -hmm. because of all this, uh, you know, terrorism and making everybody an enemy and in mm -hmm. surveillance society, police state. 
Um, in the numbers of reporting in the, the economic world right now in the U.S., we're having massive drops in uh, jobs in the corporate world, in the public sector. But in but for government jobs, federal government jobs, it's increasing dramatically, even in this terrible economic state. Yeah. So it's going to be almost like communism, where most everybody works for the state. Well, I, I remember listening to a uh, to one to one political commentator, uh, sort of an independent guy, say. He said that he said this almost a year ago. He said, "Politics nowadays is communism, whether you color it red or you color it blue." And uh, it was very provocative, but I think he, I think he was really highlighting some of the non-differences with uh, uh, the current mm-hmm. uh, political candidates. Right, right. Well, this is just something we want you to be aware of. Yeah. Um, you get your financial house in order. Yeah, it might be good to you know stock up on on stuff, and you know instead of buying filet mignon every day, mm-hmm. uh, you buy some more hamburger. Well, and also instead of spending wasting all your money on entertainment, just listen to the Future Quake show. Each well, I was going to say. I was going to say that somebody could buy me a new car because that Jeep is looking pretty. Well, if they feel led. They feel led to do that. Yeah. Then <laughs> We're kidding, folks. We're yeah, just kidding. Of course, you know you put it out on the airways to our millions of listeners. I know. You know. The Lord probably would have just dropped that in your driveway. I'm going to say this explicitly. I'm just kidding, folks. <laughs> you'll you'll learn this about me. I have kind of a weird sense of humor. Well, do you have another story for us? I do. Uh, it would seem that Japan has decided to be a little more transparent with some of their scientific experiments. Scientists at Hiroshima University's Institute for Amphibian Biology in Hiroshima, western Japan, have bred transparent frogs whose organs can be seen through their skin. The lead researcher, Masayuki Sumida, says researchers produced a creature from rare mutants of the Japanese brown frog, or Reina japonica. You can see through the skin how organs grow, how cancer starts and develops. The researcher can observe how toxins affect bones, livers, and other organs at lower costs. Uh, where did we go? I made you lose your yeah, space. I'm yeah. sorry. We're, let me know if it gets too slick for you. You can watch organs of the same frog over its entire life as you don't have to dissect it, uh, according to Professor Samita. Reducing the number of dissections in schools will eliminate a lot of controversy from animal rights groups concerned with humane treatment of laboratory animals. It will also save schools money on the purchase of frogs to dissect. The researchers also say that by fusing the genes of fluorescent proteins to the frog's genes, they can create frogs that glow. Supposedly, they would be able to see exactly when a cancer begins to develop as the frogs will actually begin to glow in the dark. Mm. I can't imagine any genetic engineering being on the horizon to breed transparent cats or dogs. I sure hope not. However, I bet lots of parents wish those hamsters and gerbils that occasionally get loose would glow in the dark. Professor Samita may start a sideline product by growing by producing glow-in-the-dark little pets to pay for his research. Okay. That's an interesting thing. You it know? sounds like they just want to do some kind of weird experiments like kids and then try to find some justification later. To well, I tell you, you know, as, as one of the frequent guests here at Futurequake has mentioned... Uh, Transhumanism is, is something that's growing by leaps and bounds. Yeah. You know, the idea where they're taking uh, genetically modified animals and beginning to combine those with other animals and, in some cases, humans and stuff. In this case, it would be transparent humanism. <laughs> I hope I'm clear <laughs> on that. You know, you are a master at the... Uh, 
at the uh, the little one liner, the Benny the Benny Hinman style one liner. Yeah. Uh, you can see right through me, can't you? <laughs> see what I mean, folks? <laughs> He'll be here all week, folks. Try the fish. <laughs> <laughs> well, we don't offer much by way of information, but we we try to maybe get you a little laugh about doom and gloom and terrible things happening mm-hmm. in the world. And we hope you enjoy that. Um, we're going to have to say goodbye, but we need to let them, let Merv tell them how they can send information. You know what? If you'd rather not hear us blather, send us some emails. Let us know what you think about the show or a guest or some new topics. But I'm taking away uh, Merv's thunder here. Merv, you tell them how they can find out more about our show and how they can get info back to us. Future Quake radio broadcasts are archived at www.futurequake.com suitable for downloading or streaming, as well as other show information. Email Dr. Future and Tom Bionic at drfuture at futurequake.com. That's D-R-F-U-T-U-R-E at futurequake.com. Tell us your name, city, and radio station or Internet, and if we can use your name on air. Comments on the show's topics or guests or suggestions for future show topics or guests are most welcome. Dr. Future and Tom will discuss selected emails each week during the radio broadcast. Okay, Murph, thank you so much for that. And ladies and gentlemen, it's time for us to call it a week on the Future Quake show. We're going to split. And we've got a great show next week, and we've got uh, some big names coming up uh, in the next few weeks ahead. So um, I won't give it away, but I'm excited. I will say that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's going to keep getting better, and mm-hmm. but we always would like any kind of suggestions you have for guests. So yeah. until then, we're going to have to say goodbye, but uh, we hope until next Monday, we hope your future is very bright. Any last words? Auf Wiedersehen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the end of Sound of Music there. Yeah, there you go. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it's wonderful being with you this week. Thank you for letting us uh, in your radios, and we'll see you back this time next week on Monday. Until then, have a wonderful week. Goodbye. Join us next time as we dare to experience another aftershock of a future quake. quake, quake, quake.